encouraging, powerful, blessed words of the gospel we sang this morning, and I'm thankful for them. And now I'm going to, uh, after those uplifting hymns and great truths of Scripture, I'm going to discourage you. There's not enough bad news in the world right now. I've got more of it, a ton load of it, and I'm going to share with you this morning. Stand with me as we read 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to actually read just the first 10 verses. won't get all that nearly covered, but we're going to get started anyway this morning. Verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, each denying, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Father, Thank you for your word. Even when it forces us to confront hard things, the realities of life as your servants in a fallen, rebellious world, a world still groaning and we groan with it. Help us as we've received life in your son, Jesus Christ. Even though it's just a foretaste of heaven, help us to enjoy that and to live in it and to move forward in it, to grow in it, and help us to be faithful ambassadors in this lost world of ours. Protect us. Use this scripture to prepare us even now for what is and what is still to come. And Father, we pray that your son, Jesus Christ, who died on that glorious cross, who's purchased heaven that is before us, that, Father, he would be exalted and that the gospel of Jesus would be seen and understood maybe for the first time by some who have never yet come to know him as Savior and Lord. Father, I ask you to take a very weak preacher and somehow guard my lips and mouth so that what I speak might be true. And more than that, take words and power way beyond me and apply it into our lives by your spirit into our hearts. Help us to order our lives, to order our church, to order our future by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. So what is this disturbing reality about our church, about the church of Jesus Christ generally? And what is this future we must confront? What is this terrible reality? Well, 
It's false prophets. Find it in the first three words of chapter 2. But false prophets. Those are the three words that set the whole tone for chapter 2. And you notice it starts with that important word, but. In the scriptures, there are a great number of very important buts. Where some reality is there, but something else changes that reality. You know many of them. Often things are bad, but then there's something good. The most famous of those verses would be Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But, thank God for that but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Jesus was facing temptation, he quoted the Old Testament. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You can have all the food, all the wealth, all the, all the things to satisfy you physically, but it's not enough. We live also by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then sometimes we start with something that's good, and then everything's changed because something's different. You remember in the Old Testament a man named Naaman. Naaman had quite a life. Everything was set for him. 2 Kings 5.1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, not a bad place, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. But he was a leper. That changes everything, doesn't it? It's in that sense that we come to 2 Peter, and we've spent all these months on chapter 1, this glorious, marvelous, positive, encouraging, hopeful, uplifting exposition of the gospel and of the power of Christ, not only to save us and to set us free from our sin, but then to, to live that life out. We're growing in grace and in, in the shalom, the peace of God. We, we have the divine power that, that provides us everything we need for life and righteousness. Great and powerful, wonderful promises of ours that, that mean the divine life can be experienced now. We can be set free from all the junk that corrupts and ruins our life. And, and there is before us this, this whole pathway of, of the virtues and the things of Christ that, that should become ever more prominent in our life. And then the chapter ends with we know all that, we stand on all that because God has told us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the scriptures themselves, the, the gospel message comes to us with this sparkling, pure, trustworthy message from heaven given by human beings, but given to us with the absolute perfection of the Lord. What a great thing it says. Now, you remember in your Bible when you see chapter divisions, verse divisions, those, aren't, those weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit. That was just later put in, usually pretty helpful, but sometimes they, you should never take them too seriously. This is all just one letter. And so all that has been said, but then you start verse 1, and it's really continuing the same thought, but, but, false prophets also arose among the people. And what follows in chapter 2 is a chapter that is at one point, what should I say, weird, negative, discouraging, terrifying, Martin Lloyd-Joyd said this is one of the most disturbing chapters in the entire Bible. I'm not a guy, I get discouraged like everyone else, I, but I've never called myself depressed, and I don't think I've been depressed this week, but if anything can move me to depression, it was studying the early, this passage of Scripture. There's something very discouraging about all of that. It's, it's wonderful that 
As Peter's talking in the first part of this verse about the Old Testament, about those Old Testament prophets that had been moved along by the Holy Spirit through, through human experience, through human personalities, human backgrounds, human education, and yet what came out of them was motivated, directed, given by the Holy Spirit. Marvelous what God gave His truth through, through all that Scripture. But of course, that's not the whole story of the Old Testament, is it? The story of the Old Testament over and over is that at the same time, there are these wonderful, faithful men and women of God. There are also false prophets who continually arose among the people. We could easily spend an hour this morning just looking at the, 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 just an overview of all the false prophets of the Old Testament. We'll take one verse I think we've used it before, Jeremiah 14, 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying visions, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Now, those weren't exceptional periods of Israel's history. They were typical of their history. And worse, Peter says, that's not only the way it was in the past. He says that's going to be the way it's going to happen again. That those who live in the new covenant, those in the new life, in the, the New Testament people of God, in Jesus Christ, they're going to experience the same thing. In fact, he goes on to say very clearly here that it's already happening. Many of our ladies are getting ready to study the book of Jude. It has amazing parallels with the second chapter of Peter. But Peter is sort of prophesied about what's coming. Jude is saying he's reporting that it's already come. Jesus, Paul, John, and the New Testament gave the same warning over 2,000 years ago. And ever since those warnings have been given, we have 2,000 years of Christian history that have over and over shown us the stark reality of how things tend to go. in the news this week. I don't know if you know his name. Um, Greg Epstein. You know who Greg Epstein is, don't you? You heard about it this week. You'll know in just a second when I tell you. This is the new chaplain at Harvard University. He is the author of a book called Good Without God. He has just been unanimously elected by the other 40 chaplains hired at Harvard University to be the chief head chaplain of the university. And he is an avowed atheist. I uh, read religious news service. They had a, an intriguing article about this story, sort of gushing over this whole thing. This one sentence is just, it's just an amazing sentence to me. It was a meaningful inclusion of an underrepresented community, given that atheists, agnostic, and non-religious individuals were often overlooked in religious spaces. <laughs> Al Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, makes simply what anyone could observe to be true. They know it to be true. And that what this is is simply the culmination of not some new thing. This has been a reality for a long, long time. But it is sort of the capstone of the total victory of secularism, particularly in all of higher education. There wasn't any doubt about where Harvard University and where most of higher education and the academy is these days. Rather than being places of liberal thinking and of, of an exposure to ideas across the world, they become indoctrination factories. Where even before you start on your first day, you go to, to meetings that tell you exactly what we think about a whole lot of the key issues of the time. And you better not think otherwise or not be permitted there. I can't imagine that. I, I went to a liberal university, but I can't imagine that kind of, where you even close it down before you can even think about it. Now, the question is, of course, why does Harvard University even employ chaplains? 
You have to remember that Harvard was established by Puritan Christians in New England almost 400 years ago, and what they established it for was to make sure that there would be in New England a learned clergy who could preach and teach the Word of God. That when their grandchildren came along, there'd be some preachers equipped and able to tell the gospel story from the Bible in a meaningful, effective way. They believed it was necessary to establish that kind of institution. And above all else, that's what was Harvard was given to do. Harvard was the first institution of higher learning in America that had an endowed chair. That is money set aside that the, 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 the proceeds from that money would fund at least one professor. And the professor who was endowed at Harvard was a professor of divinity. So if they lost every other professor, they'd have one who could teach about the things of God. That idea, that vision was lost and subverted long ago. And now Harvard, no doubt the preeminent college of our nation, founded on the institution of biblical theological truth, exists to eradicate theological thought and Christian understanding. The driving idea that pervades it and across this country and most of higher education is that the only education that can be valid is a secular education and there must be no consideration, no place, no allowance whatsoever for the authority of God, His church, or His Bible. This is nothing new. This is the way trends tend to go. Paul, Peter, we think, is writing this letter, according to what his first letter is, to churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. That was the central hub of Christianity for, for its first few hundred years. Great churches and great things of God were done there. But those churches disappeared long ago. They are, gloriously, there are some believers there, but they are small and few the artifacts of that old past is just that artifacts. North Africa, great center of Christian thought, and so much of the, the, the clearest understandings we have today were formulated by Christians in North Africa, but those churches long ago disappeared. Christian Europe, very term is a joke now, isn't it? It has all the artifacts. You go visit all this stuff, but for the most part, it's just an empty shell of, of the Christianity that once was there. And I don't have to tell you that it's not hard if you pay attention at all to see that that Satan trend seems to be happening across our own land. The gospel's influence is not only less and less, it's more and more and more to be understood that it's have no place in society, more place in discussion, no place in how we think through morals or, or how we value human beings. Indeed, it is more and more hated and despised, and nothing of this is new. And I would tell you this morning, if you want to know what I think, and I don't know for sure, but I don't think we've begun this just to see the beginning of it. There is much more to come. And the root cause of this tendency, by the way, Christianity is not declining. It's growing. It's just God's, God works in other places. He takes a group of people, but then something happens. And what it is that happens, what, what creates this ultimately is not the, not the attacks on the outside first, but it's the cancer on the inside. It comes back to, but false prophets. Now, as Peter lays out this reality that is was the past, what is coming, what is already present, he lays out why it is so disturbing, why it is so bothersome, why it, why it ought to discourage us and depress us, if you will, if it could. Why is it so disturbing? Number one, it's because they will come among you. Verse one, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresy. People who are going to try to undermine the God. Let me just stop right here, okay? 
This is in my notes. I was going to talk about it next week, but I, I realized even preaching it earlier this morning, I can't wait till next week to say this. Because what I'm not trying to do this morning is make us a paranoid church. Let's be clear. There's, there's lots of us at different places in our life. Some people are better at, at, at formulating and expressing even theological thought, biblical thought, and, and some of us don't have it perfect, and we haven't, you know, we're all at different places. So this is not to turn around everybody and we catch them and say something not just right or, or they need some, it's not that. And, and let's be honest, there's, there's areas of Christian truth that which honest Christians can disagree, and but it's of lesser importance, of lesser significance. Everything doesn't rise to the, 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 the level of heresy. There's, you know, Steve Lewis can still be wrong some things. I'm going to get him straightened out one day, but we can disagree about some things. Rich, you and I can disagree about some things, but it's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Yes, I don't think it's what we're talking about here. If it is, I'll be sure to talk to you. <laughs> but there is, there is a, a, a kind of teaching that comes along that, that, that subverts the very heart, the very orthodoxy, the very, the very center of the gospel, and would ruin it. Jude, talking about not what's coming, but what's already there in the time of Jude, says certain people have crept in unnoticed. He says, they, they're teachers among you secretly. Secretly is the Greek word meaning to bring in by the side of. To induce something, to come right alongside others and to, to pretend like you're one of them and then by that, lead them secretly, craftily to smuggle in something that's going to undermine the whole message of the gospel. So you read the New Testament, it becomes clear that the biggest danger of the early church and today's church was not from the pagans attacking from the outside. It was from professing Christians undermining, confusing, twisting from the inside. That's exactly why Jesus warned. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Acts chapter 20, one of the most moving chapters in the entire Bible, we have the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He had poured so much of his life into those people and those men, that church. He's on the beach, leaving there, quite certain they'll never see him again. He pours out his heart. It's a Wonderful, wonderful part of the scriptures. But then towards the end of what he has to say, in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You notice how they always want to pull people in their own little clique, their own little breakaway group, separate from everyone else. That's often a mark of this. He says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then at the end, he says, this is your protection against this. And now I commend to you, God, and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You personally need to be in the word of God. I was reminded again this week, this wonderful gift that we were able to give out uh, through the Bible in a year books to, to people. And I still get emails, at least one or two a month, it seems like, saying how, how God has revolutionized, doing a wonderful work because they're simply reading the scriptures. This is why it's so important to find yourself in a move group where the word of God is central and the, the, the organizing document and the, the study of it and meeting the needs of its people. That's why you need to be a part of that. Because there's always going to be efforts for people to come in, to slip in, to pretend to be something they're not, to introduce things that are not true. And 
And we need, a, we need people, not just a staff, not just a few leaders. We need a people who are grounded in the Word of God. It's reminded by another preacher of Eli Cohen. It becomes a picture of this. Eli Cohen is a revered name in Israel, but he's hated by the nations that surround Israel. There have been movies about his life. Some of you may have seen it. There's a series, I think, on somewhere... He was born in 1924 in the Jewish quarter of Alexandria, Egypt. Um, he was the son of a Jewish silk tie maker. He was well-educated, became fluent in many languages. In the 1940s, war came, and Cohen ended up working with the Egyptian a branch of the Mossad, helping to smuggle immigrating Jews past British officials. Over the years, he became quite skilled in the tools of espionage. The Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, uh, saw him eventually as a very valuable man. Uh, he maintained his credentials that were very helpful as an Egyptian. He was the perfect spy. The story that I want to tell this morning starts in 1961. There's a lot more to the story, but in 1961, the Mossad sent Cohen to Damascus, Syria, where he posed as a wealthy Arab businessman with holdings in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He actually went to Argentina for a year before he went to, to sort of build a, a, a storyline, a backstory that would be uh, believable. Uh, he engaged himself in the import-export business in Damascus. He got an apartment in the wealthiest part of the city. He spent lots of times in cafes listening to the political gospel. He held parties at his home for high-placed Syrian ministers, businessmen, and others. At these parties, Cohen, it is said, dispensed free-flowing liquor and prostitutes. And highly-placed officials would openly discuss their work and the plans of the Syrian army. Cohen would often pretend to be drunk to encourage the conversations, but he was quite wide awake and paying close attention. He loaned money to government officials, and many of them came to him for advice. It was not unusual that over time he would be taken to some of the highest levels meetings of the Syrian political and military leaderships of the nation. And through all those meetings, he was able to provide enormous amounts of intel to Israel on a wide range of, of places and service. One of the interesting stories and accomplishments of his spine was that Israel, who was dependent on pipelines in Galilee for their water supply, that water supply had to pass through the Golan Heights, which was under the control of Syria. And Cohen discovered that the Syrians were planning to cut off that pipeline to cut off the water that would supply much of Israel. Well, during one of his visits to the Syrian frontier, including with the president of Syria there, he looked at the, the fortifications they had there for their soldiers meant to guard that whole whole process, and, and he feigned to be very disturbed because it was a hot desert sort of area. He was concerned about those poor Syrian soldiers. He suggested that the Syrians plant eucalyptus trees to give shade and cover for those poor guys. With the help of the USSR, Syria realizing that it had a leak someplace became obvious after four or five years. The Soviets came in with specialized equipment. They very, very quietly selected a night at the very night when they were suspecting broadcasts were being broadcast back to Israel and they had no idea who it was. And they had the entire city of Damascus closed down, all radio transmissions. E.I. Cohen didn't know about that. It was very easy for the Soviets then to triangulate on that radio signal they busted in while he was sending secrets back to Israel, caught him red-handed. He, of course, was convicted as a Jewish spy. He was tortured. Then he was brutally hung before 10,000 people in Damascus. What's interesting is that 
few months later, the famous Six-Day War broke out, and Israeli fighter pilots had very little trouble knocking out all the Syrian targets on the Golan Heights. They were all marked by eucalyptus trees. <laughs> Today, he's a hero. But note his strategy. It's what effective spies do. He poses one of them and lead them to tragedy. So why is this so disturbing? Because they're false teachers. They come in among you. And secondly, they bring destruction. They are there to destroy at the heart of what you're about. Verse 1, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresy is from a Greek word which means choice or opinion. A heresy is a choice or opinion that contradicts the revealed truth of God. It's making a choice contrary to that which has been revealed as the truth. It's the opposite of the way the scriptures were produced. Remember Peter said in that last part of the chapter 1, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. The scriptures don't come because some guy said, you know, I got a bright idea. Or, or someone woke up one day and said, I've got a good feeling about this. Let's put this in there. That's not the way it came about. Scripture is divine revelation breathed out by God. Heresy is the opinion of men. Scripture is facts given by the creator of the universe. Human opinion that goes contrary to that is simply heresy. This heresy that these guys were engaged with knew no bounds. It wasn't just minor slight things. When it had run its full course, it was the highest sort of treason. There was no limit to their falsehood and their rebellion. Peter says they were even denying the master who bought them. That clearly is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ who died in my place, who died in your place, who died in the place of all so that he would bear our judgment and our sin. One who gave up everything to bear the unimaginable for us and then to deny him, to betray him. Now there's a lot about that phrase. Maybe we'll get back to it next Sunday. Maybe some questions that raised about it, but at its simplest, this is, this is denial and heresy at its deepest roots. They worm their way in with some attractive heresy. It sounds so right, but when they're done, they end up denying who Christ is and what he came to do. In fact, if you're wondering if some group or some person is a heretic, maybe a good place to start is talk to them about how they understand Jesus. What's their picture of Christ? Mormons, I have good friends who are Mormons, but Mormons say Jesus is the brother of the devil and the son of Adam. While they no longer, they've changed this in recent decades, but uh, they no longer affirm it's true, although they don't deny that it could be true. But for a long time, their leading elders and others taught that Jesus was a polygamist. He was married to Martha and to Mary. They believed the Canaan of, wedding in Cana was Jesus' wedding. That's why he turned the water into wine. Christian scientists say that though Jesus was a man, Christ is only an idea. Unitarians say Jesus was only a man and should never be worshipped. Your Jehovah's Witness friends say Christ was the archangel Michael and that he only atoned for the sins of one man, Adam. One place to determine if something really is heretical, if it is a sect in the truest sense of the word, is find out what they believe about Jesus. Almost always they'll be off severely. False teachers are inevitably not just teaching falsehoods, but they're also living false lives. That's part of their destructive work. 
They claim to follow Christ, and yet they end up living a very different way than anyone could imagine or perceive that a Christian ought to live. He says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Other translations say many will follow their depraved ways or their, their evil teachings and shameful immorality. The word carries with it the idea of debauchery, sexual excess, absence of restraint, insatiable desire for pleasure. Describes America more and more every day. It describes what many of you are allowing to be poured into your living room every night on your TV set. We'll say more about that next week. He says, your dishonesty will characterize them. They will exploit you with false words. The word false there is from the Greek from which we get the word plastic. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is when Paul is referring to back to Isaiah, the, 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 the potter and the clay who molds, who shapes. The same word, it, it's someone who takes their words, who takes their ideas, who takes what they're trying to do, and they shape it and they mold it and they make it just right so it's very appealing. They get it just the way that, that people will buy into it and follow them. He says they exploit people. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The word greed there is the word for covetousness. It means I see something you've got and I want it. And I will use religion, I will use the gospel to get what I want. And I will exploit you with it. History is full of examples of that. Johann Tetzel. You may not think of him as the father of the Protestant Reformation, but without him, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Johann Tetzel was the guy who, uh, with the permission of the Pope and other Catholic leaders, preached throughout Germany that a person could pay a sum of money, and they gave the right amount of money, and depending on how much money they could give, that money would help them in the afterlife. Now, the Catholic Church was in desperate need of money. Many of you have been to Rome, you've seen the St. Peter Basilica, you can imagine. what a, It is a gorgeous, wonderful place. It cost a lot of money to build that sucker. And the Catholic Church was way underwater trying to raise that money. And so they sold these indulgences. You give money, and we give you a letter, we give you an indulgence, so when you die, and you go to purgatory, another false teaching that's not there, that the idea that, that sanctification has to be done in purgatory, it's a miserable experience, but it's a miserable experience. You have to go there. Even the, the most Christian person has to go to purgatory and get all cleaned up and it's a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, but then you get to go to heaven. Well, these indulgences, man, your, your term, your, your paroles comes a lot quicker if you have these indulgences that you paid for. The more you pay, the quicker you get out. What a deal. Got Luther so ticked off, he uh, obviously a big part of God's work in his life to do look at a lot bigger issues than that. But that's where it all started. This happens, this happens among Baptist, this happens across the Christian world. All kinds of ways that people get exploited. Of course, in America, we're known for our TV evangelists. They do it with a par excellence. Anybody remember this guy, Robert Tilton? He's still around. He's still got a webpage. We still give him money. He was a proponent of the prosperity gospel. His television program, sort of a late-night infomercial, success in life, peaked in 1991. He was on 230 American television markets at that time, bringing in $80 million a year. It's, his, his program would go like this. He would, 
he would say, I know a lot of you people here, you, your life's a mess, you're poor, you've got difficulties, you've got problems, you've got difficulties, you really need to have a new day, you need to have a new start, you need, God needs to do a fresh new work in your life, and I'll tell you what, you can have that new day, you can have that new beginning, everything can be better for you, send in me $100, and I got this pile of prayer cloths, I prayed over them fresh this morning, and I'll send you one of these prayer cloths, and I'll guarantee you, that act of faith of sending me that $100, you get that prayer cloth, and everything's going to be turned around. And he'd talk about this and talk about that. And suddenly, right in the middle of a sentence, he'd stop and say, wait a minute, there's somebody out there right now, and you, got, you don't have just a regular old difficulty. You don't have a small, you, you got a real mess in your life. You need, to, you need to have a complete turnaround. If you'll send me $1,000, I'll not only send you one of my prayer cloths, I'll send you one of my tithes. I could recommend what he might do with his tithes, but... Uh, These false teachers, what's disturbing about them, they are, they're going to come in among you. They're going to bring destruction. They're going to exploit people. And they're going to cause the gospel to be blasphemed. People end up rejecting the gospel before they even hear of it. Verse 2, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So even if our doctrine is right, even if we've we got everything, but, but, but our lives are a total contradiction of what that gospel is, we, we undermine the whole message. You remember the famous quote from Mahatma Gandhi when he visited England? Many decades ago, Christianity still had a prominent place in English society, but when he got back to India, after studying Christianity while he was in England, he said, I am greatly impressed with Jesus Christ, but I cannot recommend Christianity to my people because his disciples are so unlike their Lord. I have people in my neighborhood I try to talk to about the gospel. You've probably had the same experience, and and you begin to even move in that direction. They say, wait, 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 listen, I don't know a lot about Christianity. I don't know a lot about, I don't know, I don't know about, but I just, I just have to tell you, I've, had some, I've dealt with, I've done business with, I've been involved with some Christians over the years, and if, uh, I just don't, I don't want any part of it, thank you. And they won't even open a door to hear it. What's so disturbing about these false teachers, they come in among you, they bring destruction, they exploit people, and they cause the gospel to be blasphemed, and the last one is the worst one, and they are successful. They're so successful, many will follow. And indeed they do. Well, there's one more characteristic about these false teachers. I don't, depend on how you look at it, whether it's good news or bad news. Ultimately, I think it's good news. They come in among you, they bring destruction, they exploit people, they, they cause the gospel to blaspheme, they are successful, but finally they are also the truth, they are headed for destruction. They are headed for destruction themselves. Verse 1 says, they bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I can't keep up with both things I'm discovering, so... If you look at the text we read, starting with verse 4 and going all the way through the end of verse 11, Peter writes one very long sentence. It's one of those conditional sentences. If, then, you know, except this one is if, 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 then. So look at it with me. He says, if God did not spare rebellious angels. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? Until he says some more about that. What what that that possibly be about? Well, I'll say more about it next week. We'll uh, we'll look at it at that point. 
I'll answer all your questions. You won't be any doubt about it ever again. So, but let me just get to the heart of what it means, despite where I think this is referencing and why I think I'm on good grounds to stand there. The thing that is clear, no matter how you understand it, is that even angels aren't exempt from judgment. So if you're, you, you sort of think, you say, well, I'm from a Christian family, I have Christian parents, my, my granddaddy was a preacher, or this or that, or I'm, I've had this office in the church, or I have this title and this degree, and, and I'm respected across the community. People think the world of me. People tell me all the time what a remarkable, above, head and shoulders above other people. I've got, on the basis of all that standing, I'm okay. My friend, you're not okay. If God didn't spare the angels, he's not going to spare you because of your supposed status somewhere else. Then he says, if God did not spare the ancient world, but presented Noah, a herald of righteousness. You know the flood. We have a lot of fun with the flood, don't we? It's sort of a cute little thing. All the animals and the arky-arky and the gophers go barky-barky and rainbows and doves and they decorate a child's room beautifully with that and make toys out of it it's just the sweetest little old thing my friend there's never been a judgment on earth like it and it did happen it is real i'm absolutely convinced of that and it's uh, not going to be another judgment like it until we get to the end but it will come he did it once and peter says he's going to do it one more time now again it, it it takes away many people think what i'm doing can't be so bad there's no, I mean, everybody does this. Everybody thinks this is the way. This is, there's nothing special about my sin or my, what you call sin. I mean, every, everybody thinks this way, does this way, acts this way, believes this way, lives this way. Hey, I'm, there's no way I could be singled out for anything because it's so absolutely pervasive. It's, it's everyone this way. My friend, the ancient world was completely in rebellion against God. It was absolutely pervasive. Eight righteous people, the whole world, but all those apart from God were judged, and so were you. And then he says, if God did not spare those cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, and we, not too many months ago, spent a lot of time in Genesis and Sodom and Gomorrah, we noted how throughout the Bible, this is experience of God judging those cities was a forceful reminder of, that unrighteousness always ends in ruin. That the whole Bible keeps pointing back to Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of the certainty of God's coming judgment. It wasn't just them. God set that up at the beginning to say, this is the fate of all those who reject me. You find references to, to this place and to the judgment that it means in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, Jesus multiple times, Matthew 10, 11, Luke 17. Jesus said, this is the judgment. And Jesus believed in judgment. He held up Sodom and Gomorrah as the classical example and picture of God's judgment that's coming to all sinners in this world. Peter mentions all three of these now as examples from history that should remind us of what's awaiting the unrighteous. Have you ever tried to share the gospel and you get to this part of the gospel? that there's judgment coming. That the Bible says those apart from Christ who reject the gospel and will not receive are headed towards hell. I mean, if you want to get people stirred up, <laughs> that'll do it. If you want them getting mac making fun of you and laughing and mocking and rolling their eyes and you want to put satire on TV, oh, they love to make fun of this one. I want to remind you that 
supreme spokesman of, the, of God himself, his very son, Jesus Christ, is the one who spoke most clearly, without equivocation, without hesitation, of a coming judgment on unrighteousness. He didn't dance around it. His apostles did not dance around it. They didn't find political, polite ways to talk about it. He said, judgment's coming. And if you don't find a way to escape all that is before you for eternity, it's a tragedy after tragedy and darkness and terror. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never followed Jesus Christ, you've never taken and received this gospel, and you need a motivation, may I suggest this is a real good one? If this is the only reason at all, this is a reason to turn and consider the claims, the offer, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's probably some well-meaning believers in here saying, I don't know, I, that, that can't be the only, it's not the only motivation, but it's a good motivation. Jesus himself did not fear the one who can destroy the body, fear the one who can put the body and soul into hell. And the Bible is full of those warnings. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, that's not the reason, or the only reason, certainly we behave, we live a different life. It's not all there is to our Christian ethics, but it's there. If rebellious angels are going to face judgment, if that ancient world, the whole lot of them are going to face judgment, if Sodom and Gomorrah face judgment, if God knew how to rescue Lot, then God knows how to save. I think I'm supposed to push another button. <laughs> then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You know that precious verse in 2 Chronicles, for the eye of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. God knows how to rescue the godly. I think of brothers and sisters of yours and mine, we've never met them, but they're in Afghanistan this morning. It's night there, I guess. It's true for them too. One day we may face, maybe you might face something like they're facing. I don't know, but it'll be true then too. If God can save angels, you see all the angels didn't fall into that mess. And if God can save Noah and his family, despite the pervasiveness of sin, there was a small part that would stay true to him. If Lot and his daughters could be saved, he can rescue us. And if you know what that saving means, if it's not super clear to you, just go to the end of the Second Peter 3, chapter verse 13, 2 Peter 3, 13. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The word trials there is trials, difficult, hard situations. It also means temptation. And you can live a godly, holy, growing Christ, life in Christ in this very culture, in this sick, twisted you, you, can, you can have victory there. God can enable you to do what you need to do. He will protect you and provide for you. That he will do that for us does not mean that we're going to get hermetically sealed and that we're not touched, we're not pressured, we don't, we don't feel any of the dangers of, of this evil society. Well, of course we do. But he can protect us so that we can raise young people and young men and women of God and old men and women of God and we can live holy, clean lives. You don't have to feast on the filth and the husk of this world. He is able. He is able. Let me read a few other scriptures. Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every great work. 